From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I've been one of my friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but also to put it into context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. I don't know about you, but I'm getting awful tired of all these so-called experts focusing on stuff that simply doesn't matter. As the averages head down with Dow off 366 points, S&P shed 0.79%, NASDAQ lost 0.82%, let me highlight about how I think the market's about to get very difficult. We don't need the kind of intellectually lazy thinking that obfuscates the pitfalls and the dangers we now face. This is important because there's no shortage of stupid nonsense on Wall Street right now. For, uh, let me give you the first piece of stupid nonsense. That Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's trip to China will somehow matter. That, that's no knock on Yellen or the important Chinese officials she's talking to. It's just the nature of geopolitics right now. China's government wants two things, high-performance semiconductors from NVIDIA and a pledge that will let the People's Republic conquer, yes, Taiwan. At the same time, the Communist Party wants her to understand that they aren't really stealing our trade secrets when American companies build factories over there. They're just sharing those trade secrets in a benign fashion. Of course, these are just total impossibilities. Our government wants cooperation, but we aren't going to get it. Let's not kid ourselves. The Chinese government's making common cause with the Russians. They're not on our side. Their leadership might say they've had terrific meetings with Yellen, but they're not going to change anything. These talks never do, so don't get your hopes up. There will be no minimization of tensions between China and us because China doesn't want them. They just want our high-end semiconductors. Sell on the news. Sell, sell, sell. Now let's talk about another piece of stupid nonsense, the idea that OPEC still matters. There's this conference going on right now between some of the members. They're always willing to stand in front of microphones. They love microphones and tell us how well they're doing and what a united front they have and how totally in control of the market they are. And if you haven't paid any attention the last decade, you might actually believe them. But in reality, the whole thing's preposterous. OPEC is in control of nothing. We broke the cartel years ago when the United States became the largest oil producer in the world. Right now, lots of our producers are pumping aggressively. Meanwhile, Russia, 
this third largest producer in the world, they're going nuts. They love to tell us that they're cutting production in order to put a floor under oil prices. But give me a break. They are desperate to get more money in the bankroll their insane war in Ukraine. They're constantly selling more and more crude to the, to the on the slide to China and India. They themselves are a one-man destruction uh, campaign when it comes to, the, to uh, the price of oil. Speaking of hostile jeeps, Iran seems unable to control itself. Its oil production has doubled versus last year. OPEC is a toothless tiger. You know what else doesn't matter? Fed minutes. There was a time when we didn't care about those notes because we knew they were nearly a month old. Yet now we treat them like gospel. We can't help ourselves. There's not much else happening right now, so why not obsess on something that's important? Uh, even if it just sounds important, but it's really irrelevant for right now. I think the economy, amazingly, has gotten red hot again. I mean, like, unbelievable. But the Fed has got to find a way to slow that down. I fear it won't be that good for the market no matter what. Stupid uh, nonsense number four, higher mortgages rates will kill housing. In reality, there's still multiple offers everywhere when something comes up for sale. That hasn't changed because we have a massive housing shortage and consumers are still loaded with cash. By the way, a lot of these homes are bought with cash, not even with a mortgage. Stupid nonsense number five, buying stocks ahead of earnings. It's something that's insanely hard to do this quarter. Wells Fargo did well, but how about Eli Lilly? We don't know what they're going to report, though, but we can find out after and then make a more informed decision after the quarter. Otherwise, it might turn out to be pure idiocy to buy close to earnings season, especially when the banks kick things off. And they'll likely give you a lot of reasons to be disappointed, which is why I started Squawk on the Street today with how I don't like the setup and how I'm going to conclude tonight with I don't like the setup. So much of what passes for wisdom on Wall Street is totally meaningless. We listen to Fed governors and presidents divine ideas, but they don't matter because there's no majority in the open market committee. The only ones worth listening to is Jay Powell. I say you just tune them out. Minimize the confusion. Same goes for the analysis of analysts who raised their price targets for the sole reason that the previous numbers were totally off the mark. When Bank of America raises this Tesla price to 300, you might get excited with the stock at 277. But how about if I told you that the analyst was using 225 as price before that? Well, he's just playing catch up. So what should we focus on instead? Look. Tomorrow we get the June labor report, and this is the most important set of numbers out there. And this month, I bet they'll be more, more impactful than ever. I think we're going to see a smoking hot jobs number, and that's not just because we got a strong ADP number today. If the employment report's too strong, the market's going to get clobbered like it did today because it means the Fed has to raise rates and has to raise them with abandon. Honestly, if I were still running money in my old hedge fund, you know what I'd be doing after such big gains? I'd simply sell everything and day trade for the rest of the year. I'd use the free time to watch Shawshank Redemption and the Fugitive over and over and over again. More on that later. But here's the temperature of the moment. Something that's neither stupid nor nonsense. Raising cash like we've been doing for the Chattel Trust. If you keep everything in stock right now, you're really sticking your neck out. Not a good idea. There's no Congressional Medal of Honor for investing, by the way. I think it's important to talk about what companies just reported and if they did well or not. I think you can offer some conjecture about other companies that are about to report, although you need to maintain some humility because the only people who know for sure are the ones with inside information, and they're not talking. But you can't be breathless about the non-breathless. You can't be overly concerned with random numbers that come out besides the actual payroll number because they're often errant in a way that can hurt 
purview. And you can't become a hedge fund manager paying attention to minute details when you're running a personal portfolio. Unless you're a full-time trader, come on, full-time job, so much of this stuff simply doesn't matter. It's pure distraction for you at home. I know it's hard to believe that not everything is consequential. There are lots of things that might be important in another context, but they're meaningless to you when it comes to the stock market, and they hurt you. They hurt you. I don't want that to happen. If I were you, I would simply tie myself to the mass and act on nothing but nothing about an OPEC meeting or ancient Fed meetings or diplomatic contacts with China or minor fluctuations, mortgage rates or misdirection out of earnings. These are just empty parlor games. Bottom line, don't fall for stupid nonsense. There's a lot more of it out there than you might think. And given the run we've just had, it's important to be careful and, li- and like our trust, Take some darn profits already. Bob in New Jersey. Bob. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Bob. Uh, your integrity makes you the booyah saint of Wall Street. Darn it. My Thank stock, you very much. My stock is Celsius. Uh, it's fluctuated as of late, but it's got a good mode. It's got good motivation. What do you think? Is it a good keeper? All right, I'll tell you something. Celsius is one of those companies that is charmed right now. The fact that it's only $11 billion a company and it's got that great relationship with PepsiCo tells me, even though it's not making money, you can still get in on Celsius. But understand, that one is a roller coaster. Kind of like, uh, you know, maybe one of those Pharaoh's Fury things. I threw up on it once. Big deal. It only hit my kid. All right. Don't (laughs) fall for stupid nonsense. There's a lot more of it out there than you might think. On Mad Money Tonight, well, Nike's known as a legacy player in the sports space, but should it be also known as a growth company? That's being called into question. The CFO seems to think so. And I'm sharing where I come down today. And Delta held an investor day last week that helped the stock by close by you know, it made the stock go up. I'm taking a closer look at the story and seeing if the travel visa still has legs. And Levi's reported after the bell, so I'm sitting down with the CEO to learn more about how the apparel company is holding up. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. 
Head to netsuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Look, whenever I hear an executive start his or her conference call, with the statement, we are a growth company, I really wonder, are you really? Growth companies don't need to announce themselves. They can just point to the numbers. If management has to say it explicitly, well, the numbers, they clearly aren't there. And that's how I feel about Nike after last week's conference call, where CFO Matthew Friend opened his remarks with, quote, Nike is a growth company, end quote. Something you only had to say because after this quarter, the idea that Nike still is a growth story has been called into question. Despite the endless hyperbole on the comp school, again, very unusual behavior from what's usually a no-hype management team over the years, these guys only delivered 5% sales growth in this quarter, although I'm going to be generous by saying it would have been 8% on a constant currency basis. Now, you could argue, so what? Nike had mid-single-digit growth, not bad for this environment. I disagree. Hey, listen, if you're Vans, which has become a chronic loser, if not a caricature of a shoe, it's very bad. If you compare yourself to genuine growth footwear brands like On Holding, which we had on the show last night, hey, different story. Same goes for Hoka, which is now taking the world by storm after many years of incubation within Deckers. I was on vacation when Nike reported, so I originally wanted to circle back to prove that the doubters were just plain wrong and the stock should have gone up. I mean, how can you hate Nike ahead of the World Cup this summer, the Olympics in Paris next year? What are all these lukewarm analysts thinking? This should be Nike time. But the more I dug down, the more I realized that Nike might be having an existential crisis. Despite owning and even defining the categories of basketball, of soccer, and running, soccer being global football in this case, it's just not making enough money. Much less than it should, considering its dominance. I can't help feeling that they know it, but they won't own up to it. That's not the Nike I know either. There are two big problems right now at Nike, at least on the surface. First, for still one more quarter, there's a ton of inventory in the channel, meaning Nike's got a lot of merchandise they just seem to can't get rid of. Second, they describe the marketplace as highly promotional, meaning discounts galore are coming in. A shoe race to the bottom. But its competitors weren't talking about promotion. Hmm. 
I am stunned that Nike seems to be in such a bad place. They crushed it in China, where they have the best numbers of any, any American company. They've got the best-known basketball stars all wearing their product. They've got the Jordan brand, which is growing in the mid-30s, even though many people buying these shoes weren't even alive when Jordan played. Might as well be a river as an HOF for to these newbies. Nobody else has that kind of advantage, so how come they're not blowing away the numbers? On the call, they kept coming back to excess inventory and the promotional environment over and over and over again. Would they ever be able to unload that merchandise? Would the promotions ever end? All at the same time, Nike stressed that the, the transitory costs of COVID are still being worked through, which is insane. I listen to hundreds of conference calls a year. And this long after the pandemic, I mean, come on. I'm not aware of any other company that is still troubled seriously by freight and supply chain woes. Nike's still plagued by the plague, which suggests that there is a real execution problem. Hence why analysts who once universally love the company have become a lot less enthusiastic. Again, I'm shocked here. Nike has achieved what other companies only dream of. It's got a gigantic direct-to-consumer business. Best in show. Its Chinese fan base is so intense, you'd think it is a Chinese company. They're even doing better over there than Starbucks or Apple, both of which have a buy China for China philosophy. To have global soccer activity growing at 25%, to have the shoe that owns basketball, to have a tremendous worldwide running franchise put it all together, and Nike should really be the ultimate growth company. They should be running rings around everyone with clean inventories and new additions bursting with profitability, which is why it's so darn puzzling that this company only expects revenue growth to be flat, to up low single digits in the current quarter. Flat. This is Nike. How the heck could it have gross margins declining by 140 basis points to 43.6% because of higher input costs, elevated freight and logistics expenses, and still higher markdowns? For most companies, that's last year's litany, not this one. While they say things will get better, better means the gross margins will decline only 50 to 75 basis points. Well, hallelujah! Nike's telling us to lose the gross margin game, but not as bad as they lost the last gross margin game. Come on, guys. You're athletes, aren't you? We don't want to hear about being beaten by a lower score. We want wins. Give us a couple of W's, Nike, will you? Is it that hard? Somehow, Nike's built out an amazing direct-to-consumer business, the envy of the industry, that lets them cut retail middlemen out of the equation. And a lot of it's because they got incredible social people working there. Social meaning like, you know, the net. Income. Anyway, the wrong direction here. And that's such a lucrative channel. The Internet channels, great Facebook. It doesn't matter. You know what? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe Nike's stuck with all this excess inventory because they de-emphasize traditional retailers like Foot Locker to focus on fewer partners, meaning now they have to put have no place to unload their unwanted merchandise. I am sure Foot Locker could sell it at adequate prices, or maybe they simply misjudged the market, which is the cardinal sin of retailing. I'm almost tempted to wonder if both Hoka and One Holding are biting into Nike's business, but I think they're still way too small to do this kind of damage. Some of the problem is certainly self-inflicted. Just a few years ago, Nike mistakenly kept the professional NFL uniforms, but gave the exclusive fan franchise to Michael Rubin's fanatics. Just when fantasy football exploded and caused a boom in jerseys, business. They could have made so much money on NFL merch. They went niche with professional, not broad with fan. How dumb can you get? Now, you can't blame current Nike management for this monumental misstep because it's something that happened under the previous CEO. But this might be the most ill-advised deal in the apparel history. 
That is, unless you're Michael Rubin, who made out like a bandit. When Fanatics comes public, we'll find out how much money Nike left on the table, but I am sure it's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars at least. Other than that, I don't know if you can fully pin the current problems on John Donahoe, CEO, took over January 2020 in auspicious time. Stock was at 100. It's now at 105, while the rest of the market is indeed up big. Donahoe took over again, though, in a very inauspicious moment right before the pandemic. Now, longer term, I think it's a mistake to give up on Nike here. I bet we'll look back at this time and wonder why we didn't clamor to buy the stock ahead of the World Cup in the Paris Olympics. In the end, they'll be able to get rid of that excess inventory someday, and the environment won't stay promotional forever. Dono can call, call back the retailers you rub the wrong way, like Foot Locker, and give them the same preferential treatment he gives to Dick Sporting Goods, his favorite outlet in America, mentioned on the Kravitz call. But man, Nike has this, Nike, the stock story, is now very much at odds with Nike, the company that's so far ahead of its competitors in the lucrative digital marketplace that has so many more sponsorships. This is one of the most beloved brands in the world. At the end of the day, I think the biggest problem with Nike is uh, at the stock level, not the company level. Wall Street still values it at 28 times forward earnings estimates. With these multiple miscues, that multiple is just plain undeserved. Bottom line, if you read the analyst reports after digesting the conference call, that valuation just seems way too ambitious, way too positive for a stock that's done nothing now for a year. Nike's growth has slowed so dramatically that it now has to reclaim its growth company status on its own call. That's never a good sign. I'm still a believer longer term, but it takes a superhuman level of patience to stick around when the short term is this ugly and so self-inflicted by very, let's say, to be a, let's be gentle, a confused management. Man money's back at the break. Coming up, is Delta Airlines ready to fly higher into the stratosphere? Or is now the time to take some profits and let this plane come back down to earth? Kramer's giving you his take next. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The bull market and travel came back in full force last month, and the cruise lines exploded higher. Uh, So much that it's making me a little queasy. The airlines rallied 17%. The weird thing is we've known them about this post-COVID travel boom for roughly 15 months, and it never went away. If you looked at anything travel-related, the businesses continued to be great. But the stocks got lost in the wilderness about a year ago when Wall Street became convinced that the Fed's relentless rate hikes would throw us into a horrific recession, and how the heck can you own an airline recession? It's the worst stocks in the business. So what changed? Look, it's been a year and there is no recession in sight. After four straight strong quarters from all things travel, I think the bears finally capitulated last month. 
even if they still think we're headed for a recession, they've given up on expecting it anytime soon. You've now got huge gains in the best of breed airlines. If you listen to me when I told you to buy them in the week this last October, since then, Delta's up 45 percent. United's up 40 percent. But now we got to ask ourselves what comes next. Historically, the airlines have been tough, though. They made great short-term trades, right? I mean, that's what you would do when business was booming and Wall Street underestimated them. However, they often got you killed as long-term investments because this is the classic boom and bust industry. But that's why tonight I don't want to focus on one airline in particular. There may not be. Delta, because both it's the best-run airline out there and because Delta just hosted a very informative Investor Day event last week that really made it clear what's happened here. The theme of Delta's Investor Day was beyond, meaning beyond COVID, beyond the post-COVID recovery. Going forward, Delta's management believes that we're now in a period of structurally higher demand for air travel. That's right, secular growth. And when you look at how the stock rallied 7% that day with many analysts putting through price target hikes after price target hikes, well, it's clear they made a pretty darn compelling case. Let's start with the explicit numbers that were given Tuesday. Delta updated its guidance for the second quarter for the full year while also reaffirming much of its previously introduced guidance in 2024. There was very little to complain about from these numbers. After guiding for 15 to 17% revenue growth for the second quarter, that's incredible, Delta now expects 17 to 18% growth. For the full year, management have been expecting 15 to 20 percent, very aggressive revenue growth. But now they're talking about 17 to 20, lifted the bottom side. They're also their operating margins will come in at the high end of the previous forecast for both the second quarter and the full year. Sounds like not a lot of competition. In terms of earnings, management raised their second quarter earnings from two dollars and two dollars and twenty-five cents up to two and a quarter to two fifty. For the full year, Delta says the earnings numbers should come in at the high end of the previous forecast of five to six bucks. Finally, this was really huge. They raised their full year free cash flow outlook, taking it up from more than two billion all the way up to more than three billion. Delta's become a cash machine. How about the longer-term 2024 forecast? Well, these weren't new numbers, just management reaffirming their old targets. But this time, Delta was able to convince Wall Street that the 2024 numbers are achievable. Before, they've been talking about how they're going to do 7 bucks a share in earnings and more than $4 billion in free cash flow next year, which would be huge if it happens. This time, though, we got some more detail on how the company can get there. Delta now says they'll grow their capacity by mid-single digits next year, while they're, they expect their non-fuel costs per available seat mile to decline by low single digits. Wow. At the same time, managers said to expect their capital expenditures to shrink by half a billion dollars next year. When you factor that in, the $7 earnings per share seems pretty darn realistic. But Delta's actually been telling us that that would be the number for 2024 since last July. Initially, people believed, but as the Fed kept tightening, the analysts slashed their estimates. That's what keeps happening in this market. At the lows last October, the consensus was that Delta would only earn six and a quarter per share. Now, though, the analysts take the forecast seriously again, and we're looking at 732. Why? It all comes down to the details. In last Tuesday's Investor Day, management went on great pain, great pains to explain that the pent-up demand for air travel still is a long way to go. That's the long-on-money, short-on-time thesis I keep telling you about. We're now well into the post-COVID recovery, but according to Delta, air travel still is a long way to go before it recovers to pre-COVID levels as a percentage of GDP. Historically, air travel makes up about 1.3% of gross domestic product. Last year, it only recovered to 1.2%. This year, Delta expects it to reach one3 
of GDP, which is just normal. CEO Ed Bastian, whom I like very much, says this this backdrop is, quote, unlike anything that any of us have ever seen, end quote. He believes we've got about $300 billion worth of missing travel demand that's just yet to recover. That's wow. Listen to this, quote, while everyone is talking about this huge surge of pent-up demand revenge travel, we haven't even made a dent in that $300 billion yet, end quote. Wait, what about all those recession fears, though? I mean, shouldn't we avoid this one? Won't people stop traveling as the Fed keeps tightening? Well, tightening? Hold it, Bastion says. Everyone's worried about the consumer. I get it. They should worry about the consumer, maybe in certain sectors, but not in this sector. Employment is strong. Wages are up. And the evolving consumer trends continue to benefit from uh, mobility, end quote. And that's before you factor in the tremendous demand for travel post-domestic. I think Bastion makes a compelling case, and Delta is the way to go here, because they're the number one airline when it comes to operational reliability. Think on-time arrivals or missed bags. Hence the bottom line here. All travel stocks have recently received, just been on fire, right, and with raising estimates all over the place. I'd urge caution after such a spectacular move. But I'm coming around the idea that the travel boom may still have legs after the stocks go down. Don't get cute, though. Stick with the best-in-class names in the space. Remember, I think there's going to be a sell-off, but in that sell-off, maybe you pick up some. Bye, bye, bye. Delta. Kyle in New Jersey. Kyle. Bye, bye, bye. Jim, how are you, buddy? I, I'm uh, doing fine. I just went away with the kids. Tell you, I feel like I know you personally. I love you to death, and all the haters can lie. I, I will tell you this. Your advice? Let me quit a job that I hated. I was miserable in life, and I was able to make money in the stock market and open up a small business here in Ocean City, New Jersey, and, and I have, like, an awesome life. I've been holding this stock for the last two years. It's been killing me. Um, I bought in at 45 a share. It touched 45 last week, and it started to sell off again. It made me sick to my stomach today. What am I doing with my Uber, Jim? All right. Uh, and just so you know, people should know, I just shook hands with Regina Gilgan, who is our executive producer and just like me, comes to work and say, let's help people like you. Now, Uber is a great company. It is stalled right now. I don't like the stock market right now. It can come down, but management is good. And I say stick with it. It does seem like it's the only game in town. Your comments are pure joy to me and Regina, who've been doing this for 18 years. Ray in Florida, Ray. Yeah, Jim, thanks for taking my call. I have a question. $9.2 billion loan from the government, does that have any effect on stock prices? Two, when will Ford begin delivery to dealerships for walk-in customers over the supply chain issue? Ah, oh, that's a great question. Remember, fourteen was up. Uh, four was up like for two straight weeks, and had a little decline today. But that's because it was up. For, it's it's doing fine. I'm not sure the dealer business. I know that that Jim Farrell's got a lot on his plate, but I think what he's doing with the dealers is he's converting them into being much more advocate, more of an advocate for the company and for the software. I say stick with Ford, but I understand the stock just had a very good run. All right, travel stocks have run recently, and I'm coming around. 
to the idea that the travel boom still has got some legs after this sell-off's over. When it comes to the airlines, I want you to stick with Delta. Much more made money ahead, including my exclusive with Levi's. How did the jeans kingpin fare this quarter? I'm running through the numbers and discussing the latest with the top brass. Then Shakespeare, one of my buddies, said that parting is such sweet sorrow. So how does that apply to managing your portfolio? I'll reveal what we're doing with the Travel Trust that's tough to do, even for me, to address the sell-off that I think is not done. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. So what do we make of these numbers we just got from Levi Strauss and company after the close? Levi's is one of the best run apparel plays, but they can only muster inline sales and a modest one-cent earnings beat off a three-cent basis. When you drill down, the core America's region came in weaker than expected. More important, management lowered their full-year sales and earnings forecast. So is there any reason to be positive in this story heading in the back half of the year? Well, let's check in with Chip Berg. He's the straight-shooting president and CEO of Levi Strauss & Company. Get a better read on this quarter. Mr. Berg, welcome back to Mad Money. Man, it is good to see you again. Same to you, Chip. Okay, so this is basically your last time as CEO, and I think you're giving uh, the company to Michelle uh, in good hands. At the same time, I am concerned that you did do your numbers, so to speak, and that you told us that revenues could be down. And I'm wondering, what, what kind of hand do you think you're giving her? Well, um, you know, maybe the greatest gift I can give her is a low base and a low stock price. I don't know. But I don't know if this is my last time, um, unless you know something I don't know. No, I just but, know that um, you're doing you know, a transition, and I, right. I don't we're, want we're to front run. The, yeah, we're in the midst of the transition, and it's going really, really well. Look, this quarter, we knew coming into this year, Jim, that, that um, it was going to be a tale of two halves. We knew the first half was going to be really, really challenging. We were up against really, really strong comps a year ago, plus 23%. And on a first half basis, um, you know, we're flat versus that 23% base period. So I would say that's reasonable in light of uh, everything that is going on from a macroeconomic standpoint. We also knew in the U.S. we had this big ERP conversion at the end of Q1. So we shifted about $100 million of revenue in the U.S., from Q2 into Q1, which distorts the results a little bit this quarter. But despite all of that, you know, what I would say is our direct-to-consumer business and our international business are really fueling our results. Um, We're continuing to see really strong direct-to-consumer comp store growth across all regions, even here in the U.S., where we're challenged in U.S. wholesale. Our mainline business in the U.S., is growing and um, comping positively. So the Levi's brand is really strong. We're growing share. We're growing market share even here in the U.S. where we're challenged in in U.S. wholesale. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, we've got uh, big tailwinds coming in the second half with easier compares as well. So we expect to see some momentum going into the end of, you know, into the holiday season, into the end of the year and into next fiscal year. All right. So, Chip, Sometimes when you have a hand and you've got an aspect of it that is so strong that you want to put all your money down. I see that in Beyond Yoga 
and I see that in China. Are you able to pivot and put big chips in both markets? Because, boy, they seem right. Yeah, so Asia is a bright spot this quarter for sure, and that is definitely helped by uh, China. In fact, Armit, Michelle, and I were all in China uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It was my first time there in three and a half years, and it's back, and our China business is back. And in fact, ahead of expectations, um, we have taken our expectations for Asia up for the second half of the year, in part largely driven by the strength that we're seeing in China. Um, and that will help offset this weakness, partially offset this weakness that we're seeing in U.S. wholesale. I'm very, very optimistic about China. Um, some of this is for sure kind of pent up demand from the lockdowns. There's no question about that. And I just have to say on the human side of things, hearing some of the stories from our employees about what they went through during lockdown was just it was hard. And now we are seeing the post-lockdown um, spending spree as consumers come back. And that is definitely lifting our business and contributing to the strength that we're seeing in China. Um, so we're very optimistic about China and about Asia all overall. Um, and yeah, we're, we're putting our chips on the table in, in these markets that are really growing. Latin America being the other big uh, growth engine this past uh, uh, quarter from an international standpoint. Uh, beyond yoga, am I wrong to think that that can't be the next big one? I know Gap tried something. Didn't really work out so far to people's satisfaction. I think you've got a winner here. And if you do that DTC, however you want to do it, maybe that is the next leg that would make people realize what a great brand you have. It, it is certainly, we're really happy with the results on Beyond Yoga. And in fact, the results accelerated through the second quarter um, from the first quarter. You know, this business was under $100 million when we bought it a little bit more uh, than a year ago. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, we expect, we, we didn't buy it because we wanted a $100 million brand. We bought it because we believe that this brand could be a billion dollar brand. Um, we've now opened four retail stores all in Southern California. We're about to open a fifth here in Northern California soon. And, um, you know, we're, we're very, very optimistic about this brand. Clearly, that space has just boomed in the last decade, and there's still plenty of growth left. So we, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to invest. Uh, we're learning a lot about retail. Our e-commerce business on Beyond Yoga is very, very strong. And we've got a super differentiated product that the consumer, when we get them to try the brand, when they put it on, they're like blown away and, um, you know, they keep coming back for it. So we've got real strong loyalty to that brand. Well, look, it tells me that you've got something that if you decide to emphasize will be a winner. There's nothing to lose to do so because we That's saw right. what happened with Lulu. We know that the category is still underpenetrated. You could you could become a number two player in this and make fortunes. Yeah, the, the structural economics on Beyond Yoga are, are terrific. And, um, you know, we are still learning a lot, but um, very, very optimistic and uh, think that we have a long way, a long runway of growth ahead of us on this brand. Well, I got to tell you, Chip, I know that it's uh, things are in solid hands. It is still a very tough environment for apparel, but you've got some winners and that's what matters. Chip Berg, president and CEO of Levi Strauss. Always great to see you on the show, Chip. Thank you for coming on. 
Good to see you too, Jim, Thank and you. maybe next time in person. Oh, would that be something? Wow. Man, money's back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. One of the numbers here in stock is saying bye bye bye. Yo, you're playing the sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski deck to the lightning round. Okay, let's start with Michael in Maryland. Michael. Jim Booyah. Booyah, Michael. Calling on origin materials. Hey, I'm wondering what's the disconnect here? We had. Well, Nipper because it doesn't make any money. As soon as you start making money, we can start looking at these companies that are good for the environment. I like money and the environment. Environment first, except for when I'm right here. Let's go to Andy in Pennsylvania. Andy. Yo, Jim, how you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? So good, thanks. Listen, I have a question about Rivian. Now that it's gotten its production issues resolved and it's producing and delivering its vehicles, do you think it's a good investment. I think Rivian's good. Now, my friend Sarah O'Brien just moved there as chief communications officer. She would not do that. She's got horse sense. I like Rivian. Let's go to Megan in Iowa. Megan. Hey, Dr. Kramer. Booyah. Booyah, Megan. So first, I have to tell you, I joined the investment club a little over a month ago. I was on the fence about joining, but just let me say, wow. Yes. If there's anyone... Yeah. If there's anyone out there who's on the fence like I was, just make the leap. It is definitely worth it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, well, I got to tell you, I'm getting a lot of comments when I was in Iceland about the club. I mean, Iceland, that's like the end of the world, and yet they get the club. So thank you very much. <laughs> Anyways, I recently took over investing in my IRA, okay. and I am sitting on a lot of cash because everything is up so much. True. I am waiting for a pullback, but I wanted your opinion on a speculative play. It is a telecommunications company with customers in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. The company is called Orange, ticker symbol O-R-A-N. Yeah, see, I'm worried about Orange. I see that 7% yield, and I say to myself, wow, that's up there with the Verizons, which I'm always worried about. However, I like your, I like your idea longer term. I think it's very good because they are one of the only games in town. I want to thank you for the great points about the club, and I'm glad we're working for you. And the fact that you called is just dynamite. I need to go to Dave in Illinois. Dave! Dr. Kramer, my mad Icelandic explorer, how are you, my friend? Well, I would say in Viking talk, yes, I'm good. That's how they speak. Vikings. Jim, Jim, this Italian sports car company is valued on a par with Ford and GM in market capitalization. Up 50% on the year, it maintains margins around 50% and has a three-and-a-half-year delivery backlog. Jim, please update your thoughts on RACE. Dave, Ferrari is just amazing. What can I say? It is a true juggernaut. I don't know what to do other. I mean, it's, it's defied me because I always felt that on basis of price to earnings, it was too high. But they know what they're doing. They're in charge. The stock's been great since it came public. And it's winning over converts like me. And always great to hear your voice. Let's go to Yogini in New Jersey. Yogini. Hey, Jim. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. How about you? 
pretty good. Uh, I've been using Stockle AI to pick my stocks, and uh, Walt Disney Company is number one right now. What do you think? Okay, I think this quarter is going to be a very tough quarter, and the movies weren't that good. I think the next quarter will be very tough, too. I think it's going to take a year. Why, therefore, am I own it, my terrible trust? You could say, well, because you're a complete idiot and moron, and I accept that sometimes. Only on Twitter, though, not on the new thing with the Facebook. They get rid of that stuff. But if Bob Iger will fix the problems. But the fact is, right now, it's not good. Let's go. I'm not done. Kidding me? Let's go to Hugo in Florida. Hugo. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I'm good. How about you? Awesome. Great. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Mara, M-I-R-A, uh, since the 10-year yield spiked out of control. What do you think about it? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. Here's how I feel. I know people don't want to hear this, but I want an ETF, an ETF for, for Bitcoin, or I want to own Bitcoin. I don't want to own just companies that like own a lot of cryptocurrencies because I can't find out what they own. Not knocking them. I'm just saying I can't find out enough. Now, let's go to James in Florida. James. Hey, Kramer. I'd like to know what you think about Kraft Heinz Company, and I hope they you're They have some of the worst day. brands I've ever seen. They are the bad brand company. I look at what they have to sell, and I say to myself, is this what America produces? Sorry to be so blunt. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, are investors being set up for a rough second half of the year? Kramer's dishing out his thoughts on where the market could be headed from here. Next. We've been raising money for the Chapel Trust, okay? We have this. Because I don't like what's known as the setup. Back in my hedge fund, I try to figure out the setup every morning so I can take evasive action. Pull a lot of cash out, go short, buy put options, or the inverse, putting more money to work, or even buying 100%, maybe 120% positions. Thankfully, those days are over. Otherwise, I would have had a breakdown by now. I prefer this teaching job, although I still keep my hand in by running a Chapel Trust, where I show members of the CBC Investing Club my entire process, including the selling that we've been doing for multiple weeks. But let's get back to the setup. While I was away in Iceland, I came up with a new thesis, and it's not a good one. Some of this is pure intuition. I just don't like how the market's been setting records with its strength, particularly the NASDAQ, which just turned in its best first half performance since 1983. Of course, I know that if the first half of the year is strong as as we've had, the second half has almost always been up. But that doesn't matter right now when we're thinking about a discrete time within the second half where you can go down. And right now, I'm feeling, let's say, unenthusiastic about the discrete period of time we're headed into. Why? Well, first, we saw a huge wave of money come on and off the sidelines the past week. That's what I call bad money, quicksand money. The people who bought the SP 500, the Magnificent Seven up here, are simply Johnny come latelys. They're the worst kind of fellow shareholder because they'll most likely bolt at the first sign of weakness. And if it wasn't obvious that we had a sign of weakness yesterday, it certainly was today. These recent buyers are not willing to the be house in. Of pain. 
They're the enemy of the longs. As I used to say, they are sellers on any decline, not buyers. Second, so many people have made so much money this first half that you have to believe some profit taking is in order, don't you? In the old days, if I owned just the Magnificent Seven in July, my discipline said it was time to take all the money out. With those kinds of gains, you may actually be done for the year. Back at the hedge fund, if we had huge gains at this point in the year, we wouldn't tempt fate. We'd just cash out and day trade. We were done. And that's where I think a lot of hedge fund managers are now. When I was managing money, I would have been going to the movies with my fellow winners in a market like this. Why take the chance of turning a first-half win into a second-half loss? That's a cardinal sin. Third, the winners were so stark and so few that many money managers jumped into them just to show, really, to this like the last two weeks, that they aren't complete morons. Clients want to see their managers own the right stocks, like Meta, because of its red-hot numbers for the company's new Threads product uh, that might trounce Elon. Must underman Twitter. This artificial buying boosted all the big winners into a zone that was just too high. Because what the heck else were you going to buy? Now these window dressers are reverting to their true positive loves. Good riddance. Fourth, I checked in with Larry Williams from IReallyTrade.com, a master market historian who showed me that the trends could be rough for this period. I am loath to go against his stuff. Finally, a lot of our favorite stocks have just advanced too far too fast, and we wanted to sell some of them up here, even though we like the companies, so the trust could buy them back at a better price. These all start with intuition based on my personal history. I changed my mind about the setup only if we get oversold in the proprietary oscillator, one that I've introduced to club members who can purchase it. We aren't oversold here, though. We're still overbought, which means we need to be more circumspect. And so we've said some, we had to sell some precious stocks that I didn't want to part with, but that's okay. Professionals part with good stocks that they like every day if they think that we're headed lower, which is what I believe as we head into the dog days of summer. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you next time. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.